If you have your Bible this morning, let me ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. There is so much to cover this morning, no introduction. Let's just jump right in. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. That's good news, of course. Then look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you as is proper for the saints. Now you should know the vocabulary there. Sexual immorality here, it's the Greek word pornea, where we get our word pornography. So you've heard that word, and this refers really to any kind of sexual immorality. The next word that's important in verse 3 is the word impurity. And so this is a more general word for sexual sin, and it refers to immoral thoughts or passions or fantasies or any other kind of corruption. And then the word greed is a word that's often associated with sexual sin in the New Testament. It's a word that refers to the desire for more and more and more. Look at verse 4. He says, Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater, does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I want to tell you just in the beginning what my plan is. Today, I want to talk about sexual sins as they relate to us. How should we view our own sexual sin? And then next week, if the Lord allows, we'll look back at these same five verses and we'll talk about how we should respond to the sexual sins of others. So today, the spotlight is on us. Now, if you look back to verse 3, I want you to notice uh, what I think is the most important part of the verse right near the end. Let's read the verse again. But sexual immorality... And any impurity or greed should not be heard among you as is proper for the saints. He says that sexual immorality, speaking to the church, speaking to Christians, should not even be heard among us. One of the other Bible translations says that there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among Christians. He says here that sexual sin is just not compatible with the Christian life. It's like oil and water. They, they just won't mix. And, and he doesn't just say that it is inadvisable. He says it is incompatible with the Christian life. You know, to eat dog food would be inadvisable, right? But to consume rat poison would be incompatible. And so he says that sexual sin just cannot function in the Christian 
life. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where it tells us this. I think about 1 Corinthians 6.13 that says the body is not for sexual immorality. He says the body was not created so that it could participate in ongoing sexual morality and still be all that God calls for us to be. And then two verses later, three verses later, it says the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And so there is an incompatibility between sexual sin and living the Christian life. Now why is that? Is, is sexual sin somehow an exception to the grace and mercy of God? Is sexual sin not forgiven like every other sin that we read of in Scripture? What's so special about sexual sin? Well, that's an important question. And so I want us to look back through these verses, and I'm going quickly because there's much to cover here, and I want us to answer the simple question, why is sexual sin so incompatible with living the Christian life? I'm going to give you three reasons from these verses. Number one, sexual sin destroys what God creates. You know, I could spend 15 minutes now just giving you verse after verse that condemns sexual sin and talks of the wrath of God. But, but I think all I would accomplish if I did that was, would be to deepen people's guilt and to deepen their shame. And I, I have a very different purpose today. I want you to know, of course, that sexual sin violates the, the command of God. But I want you to see something more than that. I want you to see that it destroys the good blessing that God creates. Now, of course, God will call some people to singleness. For some people, that is God's plan for their lives. The Bible tells us as much, and it says that God will show special kindness to those people. But when we talk about most of us, most of us will be married. And in marriage, one of God's greatest gifts to us, our marriage, and one of the most special parts of that marriage, sexual union, God has granted that to us to bless us. But sexual sin will destroy the blessing. It will poison the blessing that God has given. Uh, my greatest source, my greatest earthly source of joy is my marriage. There's not even a close second. And that is a gift of God. But that joy, that peace, that security could be ruined, could be poisoned by sexual sin. And, and I want to show you why. There are two things that are different about marriage, things that are different from any other relationship. And this is what makes marriage so valuable to those that God has put together with somebody but there are things that, that are in jeopardy when there's sexual sin. The first is intimacy. Uh, and the fabric of intimacy is sexual union. So that's not the only component of intimacy, but it is the only activity that I only share with my wife. It is the distinctive activity of marriage. But sexual sin 
poisons intimacy and then makes, well, because it's removed the distinctive part, it has poisoned the distinctive part of marriage and intimacy. It robs marriage of its life-giving, joy-giving nature. The other thing that makes marriage different than other relationships is the presence of God in marriage. Uh, The Bible says, uh, Jesus says, in Matthew 19, 6, they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, Jesus is talking about marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, when Jesus talks about one flesh, he's talking about intimacy. And we've already seen that's That's a key component to marriage, and it's a component that can be poisoned by sexual sin. But there's another component here. Not only intimacy, but the presence of God. That verse says, Jesus says that God has joined married partners together. And why is it important that God is in the marriage? Well, because God is the source of love. For me to love my wife, I need God in the marriage. Because Christ is is the foundation of forgiveness. For me to have a good marriage, I'm going to have to forgive and be forgiven. And so I need Christ in my marriage. And and the Holy Spirit is the fount of wisdom. If I'm going to have a a marriage that will bless me, I have to have the wisdom of God. And so I need God in my marriage in a special way. But when we bring sexual sin into our lives... We kick God out of our marriage. And then it's, it's not a godly marriage. It's just two sinners trying to live together. And that can never be a source of joy. When God is out, then things aren't going to work right in the marriage. Imagine pulling the power switch on the outside of your house. You pull that power switch and it may seem to be on the outside of the house. It is on the outside of the house. But you pull that power switch and now all of a sudden none of the appliances in the house will work. When we, when we introduce sexual sin, it runs God out of the marriage and none of the stuff God has put in the marriage will work like it should. And so sexual sin is incompatible for the Christian and living the Christian life because it poisons uh, both the the intimacy of marriage that God uses to bless us and then the presence of God in marriage which is key uh, to that blessing I want to share with you a couple of other verses that just underscore that truth the first is 1 Corinthians 6 18 listen to this flee sexual immorality every other sin a person commits is outside the body But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Now you see that verse on the screen. It it begins with this command to flee sexual immorality. That tells us that there's danger here, just even in that word flee. You don't flee things unless they are dangerous. We see here that the Bible gives us no tolerance for sexual sin. And the reason why we should flee sexual sin, or as we saw here in Ephesians 5.3, that there should be no 
hint of sexual sin is because sexual sin cannot be contained. If there is a little bit of sexual sin today, there will be a lot of sexual sin tomorrow. And so he says here that we should flee sexual sin. Sex is a gift from the Lord, and he's given it to us for a purpose. Do you know the purpose of sex? It has two purposes according to Scripture. One, the very obvious purpose of procreation, so that we can make babies. But the other purpose is that it might add to the joy and the intimacy of marriage. So those are the purposes of sex. And as long as sex is used for those purposes, it is a great gift from the Lord. But when we use it for some other purpose, then it becomes a great danger. You think about fire, and you've heard this illustration before. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Well, if you're using the fire to grill some steaks, it is wonderful. But if the fire is burning down your house, it is a terrible thing. And sex can be both wonderful and terrible. But it says in this verse, and a lot of people ask questions about this, he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean venereal disease. And I've heard people preach that before. I've read it in some books, but that's just a million miles away from what this verse means. And ordinarily, I wouldn't even mention it, but you hear it so often, I think it needs to be said because we don't want to get this wrong and miss the important truth that God has for us. If that's what this verse meant, it would have said that, and it doesn't. And also, if that's what the verse means, then practicing safe sex would make it no longer a sin, right? So, of course, it doesn't mean that. So what does it mean when it says that he who sins sexually sins against his own body? Well, if you look at the next verse, and really the next several verses, but I'll read the next verse. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He's not just talking about your physical body, flesh and blood. What he's talking about is all of who you are. He's talking about your emotions. He's talking about your mental health. He's talking about your soul. He's, I believe, even talking about your marriage. Because he's told us, Christ said, that when you're married, the two become one flesh. One flesh, that's the body. And so here he says, when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. I think that includes, it includes your marriage. And so when we sin sexually, we are injuring our whole body. We're injuring our spiritual identity. We're, we're, we're ruining our closeness with the Lord. We're spoiling the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience. Those things can just go away. When we sin sexually, we're wounding the emotional part of our lives. We can bring depression and anxiety and all kinds of emotional ills. When we sin sexually, we poison the intimacy part of our bodies. Our marriages are wounded by our sexual sin. That's what that verse means. Now let me share one more verse and then we'll, we'll continue in our outline. Proverbs 5.22. Now this is in a longer section on sexual sin, but I, I want to pull out this one verse because it has two very important analogies. Listen, 
A wicked man's iniquities will trap him, and he will be entangled in the ropes of his sin. Now, do you see the two analogies there? The first one is a trap. He, he says that our sexual sin will be a trap. Now, what is a trap? If you're going to trap an animal, or if uh, we say that somebody's been caught in a trap of some sort, a trap is something that, that captures you, but it's something that you don't see. You don't see the danger until the trap is sprung, right? That's the very nature of a trap. So here he says that sexual sin is a trap. That means that you cannot see the full danger. No matter how smart you are, no matter how clever you think you are, no matter how many times you've read the Bible or been to church, none of us can see the full danger of sexual sin until we're caught in the trap. So he says that sexual sin is like a trap. He also says here that, that sexual sin is something that we can get tangled up in. If you've ever had a a bunch of fishing line or maybe a bunch of yarn. I've never tried to untangle yarn before, but, but, but you get the picture. And, and it's been pulled and pulled and stretched and those knots have tightened down and, and you have to untangle that mess of string. That can be a, a daunting task, maybe even in some cases an impossible task. He says when we are involved in sexual sin, it's like we've gotten tangled up in those, in the ropes of that, of that sin. I have talked to men who have told me that they would give their left arm if they could get out from under the daily practice of pornography. And while I don't know that every man who's told me that was telling the truth, I think many of them were, but they're tangled up so in this sin. They're so trapped in something that they didn't foresee that it is very hard for them to ever loosen all of those knots. Sexual sin is just not compatible with the Christian life. And so I want to give you another reason why that is true right here from this passage Christians are representatives of the Lord. And so number one, we learn that sexual sin is not compatible because it destroys what God creates, but it's also not compatible because we are representatives of the Lord. Now, if you look back at verse three, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper, as is proper, as is proper for the saints. What he says here is that there is something that's proper for us. Uh, this is really the whole message of the second half of the book of Ephesians. And, and we've talked about this before in this series. The first three chapters of Ephesians tell us of our great salvation, our relationship with God. And so then the last three chapters of Ephesians tell us that as a result of that relationship with God, we ought to live a certain way. And so verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 says we should walk worthy of our calling. Verse 17 of chapter 4 says that we should no longer live like the Gentiles, that we shouldn't live like lost people live. Because 
We represent Christ. There is so much more at stake here than simply the quality of our marriage and our experience of joy and intimacy. We must remember that we represent Christ and our lifestyle choices influence what the world thinks of Christ. That's why he says here in verse 3 that there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality in the life of a Christian. Listen, church, not even a hint. And for the sake of the glory of God in this community, for the sake of the impact of the gospel, church, we must not get this wrong. There must not be a hint of sexual immorality among us. I um, lived in Ohio for a lot of years, and my family lived not far from the Amish country. I don't know if you've ever visited the Amish country, but it's uh, fascinating. And so when family or friends would come up to see us in Ohio, one of the first things we'd do is take them to the Amish country because you'd see things that you didn't think were real, but they are. So I want to ask you, what do you think of when you think of the Amish? I imagine even if you've never been there, some, some pictures come to your mind. What do you think of when you think of the Amish? Well, you probably think of some farmers, and that would be correct. Most of them farm or or make cheese, uh, or sell trinkets to passerbys. Uh, maybe you think of people riding in wagons, and they do, or people without electricity in their homes. I mean, we've got this image of Amish. If I say Amish, you all have a picture in your mind. Well, church, when people think of Christians, Christians, not Amish, but Christians, and when people in Nacogdoches Nacogdoches, think of people at First Baptist Church, there ought to be something distinctive. Just like there's something distinctive about the Amish, there ought to be something distinctive about Christians. And the headliner of that distinction ought to be that there is not even a hint of sexual immorality among us. That we have the strongest marriages and the, and the highest regard for sexual purity. Now, how do we measure that? I want you to see here in verse 4, he tells us that there is a test. If you feel like there's something wrong inside your body, you go to a doctor, and that doctor can't really see inside your body, so he or she will do some tests, some blood tests or something that will, that will show if there's some disease in your body, perhaps. Well, here's the test. He says in verse 4, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. I read one commentator this week. He says that there's two indications of a man's character. What makes him laugh and what makes him weep? And so here he says that one of the barometers of your commitment to sexual purity uh, the things that you laugh at, the jokes that you tell, the words that you, that you use. And so sexual sin is not compatible with the Christian life because we are representatives of Christ. But there's a third and final reason. It is not compatible because sexual sin is idolatry. Now look with me in verse 5. This is a verse that really causes people problems. He says, For know and recognize this, 
Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, so he repeats those same three sins we saw in verse 3, who is an idolater. So if you're guilty of those, you are an idolater. Does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So I want us to first look at the question of idolatry just very briefly. And then I want us to go to the end of that verse and answer the question about the salvation of someone who considers himself a child of God yet continues in sexual sin. He says here, with respect to idolatry, that, that we're guilty of idolatry if, if we're guilty of sexual immorality. Now, how could that be? Well, idolatry is placing something above God, making something in your life more important than God, making something in your life a greater source of satisfaction and peace and joy than God is the source for those things. That's idolatry. And here he says, and this is confirmed in Colossians 3, 5 and some other places, that when we have ongoing sexual sin in our lives, that we are guilty of idolatry. Guilty of idolatry. Now, can then a person with ongoing sexual sin, guilty of idolatry, right here in this verse and others, can that person also be a child of God. That is one of the most important questions and one of the most often asked questions we could talk about this morning. So let's see if we can find the answer. I, I, I want to read verse 5 again. And I know we've read it, this will be number 3, just in this sermon. Uh, but we learned last week, if you remember, that truth comes not from our feelings, it doesn't come from how we were raised. Truth does not come from the opinion of the world, but truth comes from what? The revelation of scripture. Truth is revealed to us. So this is an important question. Let's look at this verse one more time. He says, for no one recognized this, every sexually immoral, impure, greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Could that really be true? Let me read it from another verse of scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote about the same thing. Verse 9, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Now, who are the unrighteous? He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. And that's where the verse ends on the screen. But let me read to you the next verse. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty plain, right? It's pretty plain in Ephesians 5, 5. It's pretty plain in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. It's pretty plain. 
Now, it's a negative statement. People who are guilty, I'm going to show you in a minute, who continue to be guilty of these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says it as plain as it can say it. It's a negative statement, but it's clear. Now, the next verse in 1 Corinthians 6 tells us the same thing, but it tells it from a different perspective. And I want you to see this. Verse 11 says, and some of you used to be like this. That means and some of you used to be the whole list, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, and so forth. He says, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of, of our God. He, he says, Christians are changed people. He says, some of you used to be like this, but you're not like this anymore. You cannot have, according to these verses of Scripture, you cannot have ongoing sexual sin in your life and call yourself a child of God. Now, I, I want to make sure that I communicate this faithfully. So I want to walk through this slowly. And, and I want to put together an argument, and I want to show you that there is a caveat and there is an exception. Okay? So let's, let's walk through this and make sure we see the the full picture of God's truth. So let's begin with the question. I have written it down three different ways, just, just so we, we are on the same page. Can a Christian continue in sexual sin? That's one way you could ask the question. If I am continuing in sexual sin, does that mean I am not a child of God? That's a way you can answer, ask the question. Or, or this way, can I have assurance that I am a child of God if I'm continuing in sexual sin? Now, what are we talking about with sexual sin? I want to be as, I want to be as specific as I could be. Now, sexual sin could include a hundred different things. But I'm talking about things, the scripture rather is talking about things such as this. Living with somebody you're not married to. That's sexual sin. Living with someone in a in a sexual way that you're not married to, continuing in an affair, regularly looking at pornography, or living a homosexual lifestyle. Now, we could add to that list, but it at least includes those four things. Now, what's the answer to the question? Can I have ongoing sexual sin in my life and be a child of God? Well, we've already seen the answer from Ephesians 5.5. 5. It says, those people do not have an inheritance. We've already seen the answer from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I know that that causes people to ask some good questions. Well, what about the grace of God, Pastor? What about the mercy and the forgiveness of God? What about Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about how, how he struggles with sin, yet there's no condemnation for his sin, he says in Romans 8.1. What about those things? Well, those are very good questions. And they actually, those questions bring clarity to this. And, and I want to I show you how. Salvation. Let's explain salvation as plainly as we can. We're separated from God because of our sins. But Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life, died to pay the penalty for our sins, so that if we trust what Christ has done and we make him the Lord of our lives, then Christ will forgive us fully and completely, 100%, all sins, past, present, and future. That is, that is salvation. Now, 
When a person is saved, and the Bible uses a lot of words for that, born again, adopted into the family of God, justified, atoned, reconciled, there's a lot of words. But when a person becomes a child of God, this is important, something really happens. This is not just some academic exercise. This isn't just that your name is written in a book. Something real happens when a person puts his trust in Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that you become a new creation. The Bible says in Romans 6 that you die to sin. The Bible says in Colossians 2 that you are made alive with Christ. The Bible says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit begins to live in you. When I was saved, something happened in me. Something real happened in me. This is not pretend. This is real. The Holy Spirit is real. Salvation is real. And God made me a new creation. The consequences now, the consequences of being saved do not mean that you will be sinless but it does mean that now you will have misery with sin. You understand the difference? When I came to know Christ, I did not stop sinning, but I sinned very differently. When I came to know Christ, God gave me a hatred for sin, a hatred for sin. Now, the Bible tells us in a number of places that Christians will continue to sin. I think about 1 John 1, 8, uh, but so many other places. But as I said, as a Christian, we'll sin differently. Now, let me, let me just show you what sin looked like in the Apostle Paul's life. So people like to talk about Romans chapter 7. I'm one of those people. I bring this up in about every other message. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about how bad a sinner he is. I think I like that chapter because I know how bad of a sinner I am. Let me read to you some of what he wrote. He says, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil I don't want to do. Paul says, I'm all messed up on the inside. He says, I want to do what's right, but sometimes I just don't. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but sometimes I do it. Paul says, there's ongoing sin in my life. But what was Paul's attitude about that sin? Well, you can see it even in those verses. But let me read to you verse 24 of that same chapter. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul was guilty of sin and he hated it. He hated it. I can show you the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27. Paul says, I do not run like one who, who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body. I discipline my body, he says, and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says, I have sin in my life. And I hate it. You can see the same thing in Philippians 2, 12. He says, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to hold 
uh, to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul said, yes, I sin, but I am miserable about my sin. I hate my sin. Paul had sin, but he didn't have settled sin. The difference between someone settled into their sexual sin and someone fighting their sexual sin is, is the difference. That's why Jesus, when Jesus describes salvation, he always describes it as a commitment and a change. Listen to this, Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, if you're not willing to do some hard things, if you will run away from the, from the change, you cannot be my disciple. He says in 923, Luke 923, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. That means to put your, your, your desires, your sinful desires aside. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. This is every day, every day I repent of my sins and follow me. Now we're not saying that you're saved by your works but we're saying that a genuine Christian will not walk away from the call of God to live a holy life. I think about James, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe there's one God good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Just believing something isn't enough. He goes on to say, for just as the body without the spirit of dead is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So a Christian will sin but a Christian will not continue to revel in sin. A Christian will not be settled in sin. A Christian will not give up the desperate fight to work out his salvation. For a Christian, persistent sin may be embraced for a season, but it will steadily and assuredly become more and more bitter to him until he flees the sexual sin. So I want to answer plainly, can a person who is settled in his sexual sin, he's just resigned himself to it, he's not struggling, he's not miserable, she's not fighting, reaching out, trying to overcome, seeking the help of the Lord, can a person who is settled in his or her sexual sin, can that person be a Christian. Well, first of all, I cannot see into any man's heart. And I, I can't. But I would tell that person who's asking that question that while perhaps one day you'll get to heaven and find out that, that you're the one in a million people whose lifestyle does not reflect your genuine love for God, perhaps. But there is no biblical reason that you should believe you're a child of God. Listen, there's no biblical reason that you should believe you're a child of God. Now, have, have others said the same thing? You won't know all of these people, perhaps, but let me just go through a list. Adrian Rogers, any of you know, famous preacher. 
He said, if you're not living a life of sexual purity, you have no right to call yourself a Christian. R.C. Sproul said, for a person to continue in a licentious lifestyle would reveal quicker than anything else that his profession of faith is false. And that person is not in the kingdom of God. Tony Merida, uh, pastor, theologian, uh, do Christians fall into these sins? Of course. But true Christians will not persist in them. For persistence in sensuality is a graceless state. John MacArthur said, no person whose life pattern is one of habitual sexual immorality can be a part of God's kingdom because such a person cannot belong to him. Now, there is an exception. There's a caveat. There are some people in sexual sin and they're miserable there because they're, child, they're children of God. That's the caveat. But what's the exception? There is one exception. Hebrews chapter 12 says that if a Christian is guilty of persistent sin, that the Father in heaven, because he loves that person, will bring such discipline in that person's life that will ultimately lead him away from sin. You know, I discipline my kids. I've never disciplined anybody else's kids, okay? I thought about it. I discipline my kids because they're my kids and I love them. And God says there is one exception. If you're a Christian and you're in sexual sin, God will discipline you. He will bring heartache and pain and difficulty in your life because he loves you and he wants to lead you down a different path. And at the end of that passage, it says this, Hebrews 12, verse 8, but if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. That's our only biblical exception. Now, the job of a sermon is, uh, as some have said, to comfort the discomforted. Have you ever heard this? And discomfort the comforted. And I aim to do both of those today. I was having a conversation with somebody in our church office here this last week. We were talking about the sermon. And I won't tell you who the, who the person is. I don't want to embarrass this person, but... Uh, this person told me that he or she struggles with assurance. This person struggles knowing for certain that he or she is saved because of some sins, not sexual sins, that wasn't the conversation, but just ongoing sins. Now, this person that shared this with me is about the most godly person I've ever known. Uh, but this person said, I'm constantly confessing and repenting not sexual sins, but other sins. I'm constantly confessing and repenting and working to change. But, 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 but it, it unsettles me. You know what I said? You just described a Christian. You just described the Apostle Paul. Yeah, you have sin in your life and you hate it. Paul had sin in his life and he hated it. And as a new creation, I have sin in my life. And I hate it. So if you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you have a holy hatred for sin, I want you to be comforted this morning. I want you to leave here with a greater assurance 
that you are a child of God and that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Some days that's all I hold on to. I know that he who has started something in me, the Bible says, that one day he's going to finish it. And I want you to be comforted. But listen, while I don't want to upset people, I do want to be an ambassador of the truth. It would be far easier to just preach a message about loving your mother than to preach this message. I know that. But I want to teach you the truth. The verse that we didn't read, the next verse, Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. If you have continuing sexual sin in your life, and frankly, this is any kind of sin, but the focus of the passage is sexual sin. So that's where our focus is. If you have continuing sexual sin, listen, this message sounds like bad news, but I mean for it to be the very best news. You can be forgiven, and God can change your heart. And I'm not saying you're not going to struggle with some stuff. I'm not saying that, that God's going to untangle all of that tomorrow but I'm telling you, he will forgive you. He will fully forgive you and completely forgive you. And you've not done anything, seen anything, or thought anything that God cannot forgive. So trust him for forgiveness. Be, be forgiven and saved and washed and cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ. And repent of your sins. And as Jesus said, take up your cross daily. And tomorrow, repent of them again. And the next day, repent of them again. And tell God, I hate my sin. And I am looking forward to the day that you finish what you've started in me. But this is good news. Turn to the Lord and know the forgiveness that is available to you. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, these are heavy thoughts. This is a difficult subject. Nobody enjoys this. But it's the truth. We need to know the truth. And my prayer is that people who have struggled with assurance, but who have a holy hatred for sin, that they might be comforted and assured today. But Father, for those that are persisting in sexual sin, Father, I pray you unsettle us. Father, I pray that you bring the Holy Spirit conviction in our hearts and that we'll understand that we can't embrace that if we are children of God. And we'll turn to you for forgiveness and ask you to save us once and for all, changing our heart and our eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the Lord.